Hey now, my name is Ryan Miner. I am the host of a Minor Detail podcast. This podcast is not a one-size-fits-all template. I like to mix up the topics from the latest news, politics, federal, state, and local government, business, and entrepreneurship. And I love to feature people whom I find genuinely compelling and fascinating. Yes, it's a Maryland-based podcast, but oftentimes I like to cover issues outside of Maryland that may go unreported. My hope is that this podcast is an exploration of the truth. It's a platform where all is welcome and no conversation is off limits. And as my last name reminds me, the minor details of every story matter. For the latest episodes and to subscribe, please visit a aminordetailpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. So we're doing this new format tonight, Delegate Corman, and uh, you're the first person I think that we're going to have live on this live Facebook streaming. And I tried this thing earlier to do a uh, to uh, to do like a preview. So welcome, Delegate, to uh, a minor detail podcast. This is our we we kind of have this annual thing that we do, and I always ask you to come on. Uh, to talk about what's going to happen in the upcoming legislative session. And I'm excited. And just some housekeeping, you can find a minor detail podcast on uh, a minor detail podcast.com list all the episodes. And then I cover Maryland news and politics at a minor detail.com delegate. Am I going to see you down at session? Are you going to see me? I, I hope so. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I, I do too. Days, got 90 days coming up of uh, a lot of hard work and uh, a lot of issues to cover. Uh, it's always exciting. I always found before I was in office, legislators would come back and say it was a really interesting session. <laughs> and uh, they're all interesting. They're all interesting in their own ways. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And it'll be fun having you back down there for more of your uh, Harry Brown's uh, coverage. Harry Brown's. Last year was our first time that we posted, I guess you would say, at Harry Brown's. They were very gracious. Rusty, the owner, gave us this cool opportunity to set up shop either downstairs or over in the, uh, uh, the, the front room. And as my, my, my friend Lynn Foxwell likes to say, it is the heart and soul of where the Annapolis machine does its business. <laughs> I'm just curious, where's Lynn tonight? How did, I get, uh, how did I get this honor? Lynn must have uh, plans with his family or something. Lynn might be watching. You never know. I mean, this thing is live, and uh, we're, I'm, I'm sure that the comments are going to be rolling in. But nonetheless, welcome to a Minor Detail podcast, Elga Corman. You, you represent District 16. You cover Bethesda. It's a big area. You're based out of Montgomery County. And, well, first of all, how, how was your holiday? Happy Hanukkah to you and your family. Any, uh, any plans that you covered, or what was, uh, what was going on with you? We were in Florida, like you, uh, <laughs> in Boca, and then we Ooh. actually went on a uh, cruise for my mother's, uh, I'll just say a big birthday. I won't say which one. Uh, she took all her kids and grandkids. Uh, so my brother and his two kids from California, were there, and then uh, my wife and I and our two kids. So, <laughs> how was uh, it? Was a, you were down there? I think around the same time as Kim and I. Yeah, no, you were you were uh, you were there when we were there. Um, we spent the we did this cruise first, and then we spent a couple more days in in Boca before coming back up. I think we got back up here before you, but uh, but it was nice. It's always good to recharge uh, the batteries, and and for me, I've sort of shift from my primary focus being on one job to another because <laughs> um, the legislature, as you know, is part time, and so the holidays are just sort of that demarcation point. Uh, when my reading gets a lot more heavy on uh, DLS reports and, and fiscal notes, uh, and less on legal briefs and filings for my day job. Now, I'm I'm excited to see what happens during session. But uh, you know, outside of that, people want to know, Delegate Corman, w did you have any Netflix shows over the break? Well, you know, we were on this boat, so I couldn't really uh, couldn't really enjoy uh, Netflix, but. I've been trying to binge all these movies that uh, the Golden Globes are going to give out awards to uh, tonight. So uh, that's yeah. what I've been trying to catch up on. I know. People are probably watching this and, and thinking, well, I can watch Minor and, and Corman on this, and then we can also tune in to the, the Golden Globes. We can tweet. We can Instagram. But I, 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 can, I can't say that I've ever been to a Golden Globes award. Then again, I'm not a celebrity, so who the... <laughs> <laughs> if I may make a recommendation, my wife and I started watching a show on Netflix called Messiah. 
and it's really good, and you might be interested in it. And it's uh, it's it's pretty good. I I, I can't give it away, but I think you would like it. I'll, uh, if I ever get any free time, I'll try to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not going to have a whole lot of to free time coming up here in the next ninety days. Um, delegate, last session was man. I I got to tell you, it was a whirlwind, and it it it. There's a whole lot of things that happened during last session, but but first, and I think the last year really we saw some monumental pivotal changes in Maryland politics. We had leadership changes. Um, sadly, the 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 speaker passed away, and we had a changeover with the Senate president, longtime Senate president Mike Miller, is stepping down. So, what do you make of that? What are your thoughts on Adrian Jones, who was elected speaker on May first? What are your thoughts on Bill Ferguson taking the helm at the Senate? And where do you think? How do you think this change is going to um, to take place? Do you think it's going to be smooth change? Do you think people are excited about it? And give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely exciting. Um, and, you know, just to say a word about Speaker Bush, it was a very emotional end to the legislative session. He was just a really um, great person to work with. And it became sort of a cliche to refer to him as a coach. Yeah. Um, but it was really true. It was a really accurate description of his um, style of leadership, which is a very, you know, particular specific uh, uh, style of, of building people up and and tasking them to uh, use the skills they were good at while, you know, building up the skills that need a little bit more work and, um, you know, really sort of rallying the locker room, whether it was the Democratic caucus or the full house of delegates, you know, whatever the situation demanded. And he was just, you know, it was a real um, uh, just, you know, privilege to get to, to work with him. And I was just really appreciative of having that opportunity. And especially this past year, I, you know, ended up having more interaction with him because I was chair of the Montgomery County delegation. I'm just really glad personally that I had that opportunity. It's a big loss for Maryland. I know he's not uh, as well known in 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 Rockville, where, where I grew up, or Bethesda, where I represent, or Gaithersburg, where you live, as he is in other parts of the state. But he's just really a tremendous champion for Maryland. And of course, Senate President Miller has been Senate President since I was in kindergarten, uh, and so obviously he's got a very big uh, legacy as well. I don't work with him in the same uh, way that I had the opportunity to work with Speaker Bush. So I think you know they they've, they've been terrific. Uh, stewards of the General Assembly in our in our state, but you know, change can be positive and exciting, and you know, we're really turning a page here. You know, for years, the people would um, sort of wring their hands about the lack of change in Annapolis and how static things were, and now we're in this period of of like hypersonic yeah. change. Yeah, it, um, there's there's so much going on. A lot of changes last year, and of course, the Speaker passed away one day before Signy died, one day before session ended. And it really dampened the mood. It, it, and of course it would. And I remember standing in the chamber, in the House chamber, with, with you and you know, hundreds of your colleagues and the press. And it was such a somber moment. And anyone who wasn't there, it's really hard to describe. Now, I live-streamed it, and some people can go back and watch the video. But Delegate Corman, the moment that Adrian Jones ended session, I know that they dropped the balloons, but there was no... People may have been excited that session was over, but again, it was such a somber moment. Nothing that I've ever seen before, and and I haven't I haven't covered politics in in Maryland for too many years. But standing in that room, it was a palpable, tangible sense of grief, of loss, and just heartache for people who had known the speaker for such a long time, and having him pass the day before session ended. It certainly was a uh, it certainly was a, a, a tough moment. Yeah, I mean, that was my fifth signy die. You know, it was the first year of my second term. Right. And uh, it just, it, it was a very different feeling than, you know, any of those that preceded it. And, you know, hopefully we'll get back to that more sort of midnight celebratory uh, <laughs> style in the future. But, you know, I'll say about our new leaders. Um, first of all, I had the opportunity to serve under Speaker Jones when uh, she chaired uh, two subcommittees I was on, on the Appropriations Committee. Um, no one uh, is more prepared for whatever the uh, is before us than Speaker Jones. I mean, her advice to me when I got to the legislature and was serving on our subcommittee was always do the reading, uh, which I've tried to live by. But I mean, you could see her marked up uh, DLS reports and bills and everything. Uh, whenever a, uh, a hearing is going to start, she's always prepared. She knows the topic. Uh, she knows the issues. She knows the, the players. And so I think, um, you know, it's, it, it's exciting to, to have her stepping up into this new role. And obviously, um, the unifying figure in politics is something that we 
talk a lot about, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. But Speaker Jones is that figure uh, for both the Democratic caucus in the House and I think the full House of Delegates. And you saw that with the vote on the House floor um, uh, yeah, what it was May 1st when we uh, came back to appoint the new speaker. Senate President Ferguson, I'll just say he and I took a lecture law together at University of Maryland School of Law. He obviously paid more attention than I did. He's risen a lot faster and, and more successfully in uh, Maryland politics. Um, he's actually younger than me, so it's strange to go from a a guy who's been uh, Senate president since I was in kindergarten to someone who is is younger than me, but really exciting. And I, I think similarly, he showed that he can be a really unifying figure for the for the Senate. So, you know, it's it's exciting. It's exciting times. If you're just joining us, I have Delegate Mark Corman of District 16. He is talking about the previous session. And then soon we're going to get into what's going to happen beginning on January the 8th, which begins the new 90-day legislative session. You mentioned Senator Ferguson's age. I believe he's 36-year-old. How, you're what, 37, 38? I'm 38. 38, okay. I'm 30, I'm 34, so you got me by a couple of years. I, I, this is going to be an exciting year, and I, there's so much, I think, that's going to happen in this upcoming session, and I'm excited to see how it, it breaks down, especially with new leadership. Um, but first, I want to talk about an issue that is fresh on the minds of Marylanders, especially Montgomery Countyans. News broke on Friday that Governor Hogan and Comptroller Peter Francho, uh, Hogan, of course, is a Republican, Francho is a Democrat, they reached a bipartisan compromise on a multi-billion dollar project, a multi-billion dollar project to build toll lanes on the Beltway and on Interstate 270. And at first, uh, coming out of uh, December, maybe around the 17th, 16th, the middle of the month, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen with what the governor and his team have called the traffic relief plan, namely because the comptroller said, I am rejecting your current changes as they are, the amendments to the plan. Therefore, we, I want to, to take a further look at this. And I had the comptroller on the show. In fact, he met me before a, prior to a fundraiser that he had at Flying Dog Brewery up in Frederick. And we sat down and we talked about his concerns. And the governor, they, they kind I don't want to say they took swats at each other because they're, they're friends. They're, they're, I think they're decent friends. They both have a very mutual respect for one another. But the governor clearly wanted the comptroller to get to the point to be able to support it. So... It came out on Friday that the comptroller and the governor reached up an agreement, a plan for the Board of Public Works, which is setting, which is set up to vote this Wednesday on this traffic relief plan. So therefore, it looks like the plan obviously is going to move forward. Can you break down what the plan is and how the comptroller, I mean, obviously, just based on the reports that you've read, how the comptroller arrived at this decision and your thoughts on the traffic relief plan, Delegate? Yeah, I and mean, I certainly can't speak to how the comptroller arrived at this decision. I have been in touch with his team, um, you know, really over the past year or so that this has sort of been a, a hot issue with the Board of Public Works. Um, but, you know, they've had their own um, priorities and, and discussions with the, the governor. I mean, I think the governor... Um, wisely did a little bit of a course correction. I mean, it was very strange for him to try to jam through the changes in November without the comptroller's concurrence, given that he obviously requires the comptroller's vote or he requires the vote of the state treasurer for this thing to proceed. There is no affirmative vote, as you know, of the legislature. Right. Um, the legislature can act if it, if it wants to, but there's no requirement that he go to the legislature uh, for, you know, for anything really related to this, uh, to this project. Um, look, I think the, the changes that have been proposed are positive. I think it improves the project. I think it wisely puts off any uh, expenditure on property acquisition until the project's really ready to go, so as not to um, really waste the, the state's money. And it is right now the state's money that's being spent. Um, you know, they, one of the things the prior transportation secretary claimed was that it wasn't going to cost any taxpayer dollars. Um, we've already spent millions and millions of dollars on this. Um, project. So right now it, it is the, the taxpayer's money that's uh, at issue. So I think it's, it, it wisely uh, delays any property acquisitions. It takes some good positive steps on transit, although there's a lot of details left to be worked out there. But I think um, there's obviously a clear desire to make sure that transit is moving in tandem 
with any road uh, project that happens. And it helps a little bit on the sequencing. As you know, there's been a lot of discussion over where do you start um, with this uh, project. And I think what they're saying now is we'll, they'll do the sort of beltway spur from the American Legion Bridge to 270 and then 270 to 370. Um, I'm, fairly, I'm, I'm personally somewhat skeptical of, of the 270 piece of that. That is right where I grew up. I grew up off of uh, the Falls Road exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that section was expanded. Um, it's already six lanes in each direction. Um, it's just not clear to me that adding two new lanes in each direction, that entire stretch, uh, makes a lot of sense. Further north, um, you know, where the, the road thins out to two lanes in each direction, uh, an area you know well heading up uh, into Frederick and then beyond into western Maryland, uh, that clearly uh, you know, could use some right-sizing, in my opinion. Uh, again, you'd want to match any of that with, uh, with transit. But that stretch of 270 between the Beltway and uh, and 370. I'm just not sure adding two lanes in each direction there is going to uh, is going to do all that much. But you know, it's as I said right now, the only affirmative votes that's necessary is of the uh, of the comptroller. Um, but you might see the legislature uh, act on this. You know, last year the House passed a bill to try to sort of improve the process, improve the transparency, make sure there's going to be an independent financial analysis done, uh, and not just sort of take MDOT's word for it. Um, so there's a long way to go. Uh, I spoke with the comptroller's office on Friday when this was announced. Uh, the transportation secretary also kindly called me and talked through some of the changes. I've, of course, read the item, as you have, on the Board of Public Works uh, website. There's a lot of information not in there. There's a lot of you know questions that need to be answered. We'll clearly have oversight hearings uh, once again when the legislature convenes uh, starting Wednesday. So, you know, a lot, a lot left to do. Um, again, to summarize, I'm optimistic about these changes and some course corrections that are being made by the administration. Still a lot of questions and concerns, uh, as I think you'd expect with a, with a project of this size and scope. Uh, that's, that's a good breakdown. So let's just get into the weeds of this. The comptroller, he had some concerns about the, uh, obviously he had some concerns about whether or not union jobs would be used to, to build this new, uh, to, to build the new roads. He, he got he worked on that with the governor and they're going to use uh, union jobs. And then there was some issues with the taking of property. Break that down. Your constituents live along the Capitol Beltway, Delegate Corman. You've probably heard from many of the folks who live in Bethesda. And I'm I when I I'm in Bethesda frequently. My wife works there. You see the signs that say do not widen to 70. Do you think that the governor and the comptroller, and I'm sure uh, Nancy Kopp, who's our state treasurer, she lives in Bethesda as well, former state delegate from District 16. It, it seems like they got the message from the, the constituents, the residents of Montgomery County. It seems like uh, they were able to influence their elected officials' decisions, which is the right way to go about doing things. That's, the, that's why we have a legislature. So yeah, what, I, I, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of skepticism in Montgomery and Prince George's County. It's not just Montgomery County. Oh, sure, and I should mention that. That way that um, goes to Prince George's, where they've you know raised a lot of uh, a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I welcome the, the somewhat of a course correction by the uh, administration. Clearly, I think having a new transportation secretary um, helps. Greg Slater has a great working relationship with local governments all around the state, with elected officials all around the state, and a lot of communities because he's an open, collaborative, accessible, resp- responsive individual. And so it, it, I think it helps to have him there, because when he tells you something, um, it, it carries a little bit more weight than maybe, uh, than maybe the messages from his predecessor. Um, so I think that, you know, is very helpful. Still, though, long way to go. I mean, the concerns about the taking of property are not really so much about the timing as if it should ever be done. Right. Uh, what the comptroller was able to put in place was to make sure that uh, the timing is not also messed up. But for the people who don't want their homes taken, they don't want their homes taken ever. It's not the once the you know P3 agreement is signed, then they'll say, okay, now that the P3 agreement is signed, I'm happy to have my home taken. Uh, that's you know that's that's just not the case. Well, look, there's a lot of ferocious activists down in Montgomery County, especially below the Beltway, and even up where I live. And I look, I get it. It's uh, <laughs> we're talking about a multi-billion dollar project. However, it is a public-private partnership, which I think uh, people who may not be familiar with that, we're, we're talking about that it's going to be... Out, uh, work, it, actually, let me let you break that down. Are taxpayers yeah, so, going to pay for that? Yeah, so let me, let me just bring up another point first, which is part of the context of the concern people have about this 
is environmental. It's mm-hmm. not just are their homes going to be taken or do they like transit or whatever. It's, you know, we're dealing, you know, we're, we're in a climate crisis. Um, most people, including Governor Hogan, actually seem to uh, at least, you know, pay lip service to that idea. And so there's a lot of questions about um, committing to laying so much additional concrete for so many uh, additional cars uh, in that context. So that's a big concern um, people have. So that's just, a, you know, an important context that, you know, you refer to them as ferocious. I refer to them as committed activists. And uh, Well, I think they're, they're committed, committed and ferocious because they <laughs> they got their voices heard loud and clear. And look, these, these people are in highly intelligent, extremely policy oriented, and they're, they're, they're talented people who show up to various events and let their voices be heard in a respectful way. I've seen it firsthand. So, so on the, on how a P3 works, public private partnership works. Um, yeah. I mean, the basic idea is that you are outsourcing the project, uh, the design, the construction, the, you know, the engineering, the construction, uh, the operations, and the maintenance and the financing to a private entity. Now, these, um, you know, basically, if you've seen one P3, you've seen one P3 because they're all structured a little bit differently. Um, the purple line is an example of one in the state of Maryland. We also have one at the at the port. Uh, P3 model was used to rebuild uh, rest stops along I-95. So there's a lot of different ways to do um, public-private partnerships. I think one of the concerns that I had with the prior transportation secretary is his faith in these P3s to magically solve every problem uh, seemed overstated. And a great example is, will there be any public funds used? Well, most P3s around the country have required some upfront commitment of public funds, of taxpayer funds, uh, including the 495 in Virginia project that they're always pointing to. That had a very large, several hundred million dollar uh, taxpayer subsidy at the start of that uh, at the start of that project. So I think um, we just need to be sort of clear-eyed about the the upfront public costs. There's also the concern about what happens if the deal goes bad, if the company goes belly up. Um, you know what happens to the to the road. It's not like a business where you might just sort of wind that business down, um, and of course that can have a lot of destructive characteristics. As well, people losing their jobs and things, and money not being repaid. But this road clearly, if it's built, the state will then be on the hook for maintaining it or finding a new investor uh, to maintain and operate. And so we just need to be sort of clear-eyed about what P3s can do and what they can't do. I'm not personally opposed to the concept of P3s or bringing in the private sector to help. Uh, solve tricky problems, mm-hmm. but we also just need to, you know, make sure that the public sector, you know, sort of keeps its hand on the wheel uh, because there is taxpayer risk, and uh, that's that's our job as stewards of the taxpayers' resources. True, and with a public-private partnership, you, the the reason why we have government that establishes our roads and monitors the the, the progress is obviously because we need the oversight element, right? I mean, with with P3 projects, that was always my biggest concern was, who's going to be able to monitor, who's going to be able to have this direct oversight to ensure that it's working properly and to ask tough questions? So, are you confident? Uh, No, I mean, it's, 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 I'm not confident. It's an ongoing issue of concern. And just as an example, um, I, I'm now chairing the House uh, Appropriations Subcommittee on Transportation and the Environment. And I've asked that when we have our Maryland Transit Administration uh, budget hearing, we bring in the Purple Line uh, Transit Partners CEO uh, to be there as well, because if there's questions about the Purple Line, it's not just MTA, it's also this large private entity that, uh, you know, we need to be uh, providing oversight over and be uh, involved with. So I think that is a uh, very significant issue. And frankly, on our P3 model in general, I just think, um, regardless what you think about this Beltway I-270 project, um, it needs some fine-tuning. I think most people are surprised to find out that basically two people can enter Maryland taxpayers into a 40- or 50-year agreement for 100-year uh, pieces of infrastructure in the tens of billions of dollars range. And you're uh, talking and so about the governor and the comptroller. Yeah, in this case, it's the governor and the comptroller, but you could have another P3 agreement where it's the governor and the, and the treasurer, right. whoever the two people are. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to separate out this particular project and these particular players from the general concept, which is just in general, I think people are surprised when they find out that that's how these things are done. And there are, you know, states do it, other states do it differently. Uh, P3s are very common, but in a lot of states, uh, if the P3 is valued at a certain level, it requires a legislative vote. Some have more um, official sort of oversight entities made up of executive and legislative branch. 
uh, appointees to provide oversight of P3. So there's different ways to do it. And I think we need to sort of fine tune that model in general, because this will not be the last proposed P3 project in the state of Maryland. We have a legal framework for this. And I think that legal framework could stand uh, some improvement. Again, that's sort of regardless what you think about this particular project, or you think about the purple line, which is the other P3 operating under our existing law. And again, the when the comptroller and the governor were in negotiations, it, it appears that the governor um, heard the comptroller, and the the comptroller was also concerned about where transit dollars would go. And in addition to we we know that road widening is a very controversial topic. Adding toll lanes is a controversial topic. People were concerned if the new toll lanes that were going to be built or how they would be applied, how much money they've. We've seen what happened over in Northern Virginia. They call them Lexus lanes, and it, it, we're talking about. People who travel up and down I-270 every single day, at the very basis is that we want to mitigate traffic. And I think that there's a multitude of ways to do it. And the concern was is that the administration, that is the Hogan administration, under the prior Secretary of Transportation, Pete Ron, they were somewhat, I guess I, I could say that they were ignoring the transit component to this project. Um but it seems like that there's some progress there that transit will come um, into this into this picture. And do you want to expound upon that, uh, Delegate? Yeah, I mean, I think the comptroller rightly back in June when they took the first vote, um, you know, raised the point that we need to have a specific set aside for transit out of the proceeds of the project. That's actually done in Virginia uh, as well. The, the mechanics of that are pretty complicated. Yeah. Um, and if you read, it's, you know, basically 10 percent of net proceeds. Is supposed to go to sort of locally served transit. Um, how do you define net proceeds? That number could be zero. Um, and so you just need to sort of work out those details. I think the comptroller's approach now of having the state enter memorandums of understanding with Montgomery and Prince George's County to make sure the transit's being done in a, in a way that those counties support and is useful for them, you know, makes some sense. We just have to sort of figure out how that's going to work in practice. And, you know, I think the concern, I mean, obviously I have a number of concerns, but, you know, just... Uh, Two more I'll share with you. Um, so one, you talked about mitigating the traffic. Right. I, we need to be clear-eyed about this. It's not going to mitigate traffic <laughs> because the general purpose lanes have to have a base level of congestion to incentivize the use of the toll lanes. Now, you just graduated business school, I believe. No, no, no. I'm still in. I, I, have a, I have three more classes, and I'm done in May. <laughs> well, you know more about economics than I do, but that's <laughs> the basic idea of, of, of you know economics. This incentive has to be there, and the incentive is not because you want to pay a high toll, it's because the general purpose lanes right. still have a level of congestion. So I think if you look at Virginia, um, at least one direction of traffic, the general purpose lanes have seen a single-digit percentage improvement uh, in traffic in the short term. In the long term, they're just going to fill up again. Um, but it's not mitigating traffic. I know Kim has a really uh, difficult commute. She does. Unless you're going to pay those tolls every day. Uh, and I appreciate her coming to work in District 16 and she can go out in the restaurants while she's here and <laughs> and, uh, and make sure to uh, patronize the, the tasty diner. But um, We do, we you know, do. Unless, you know, unless you're ready to pay those tolls or if her employer is willing to pay those tolls, um, her commute's still going to be pretty rough, even if you snapped your fingers and this project was built uh, tomorrow. I think the other concern I just want to share about some of these details is under the previous Transportation Secretary, when they were uh, doing the design of the Harry Nice Bridge in, in southern Maryland, they said, we will include a bike and pedestrian uh, lane uh, access on the bridge. The governor said it, and Secretary Rod said it, former Secretary Rod. Well, when it came time to actually finalize the project uh, last month, uh, that was missing. That yeah. was taken away. And so we just need to make sure that whatever promises are being made now at the Board of Public Works uh, are really documented and, and strengthened so that that kind of uh, bait-and-switch uh, can't happen, because I think it would be very uh, disappointing if we get these uh, improvements and promises, and then they're just taken away uh, down the line. Um, delegate, that's Wednesday is going to be a busy day. We have the Board of Public Works. We have opening session. What time does session open on uh, I think it's noon, right? I think it's noon, yeah. The okay. first day is noon. So you, you, you'll be at your office, obviously, in the morning. You'll walk over, and then you'll do your thing. And then is that when everything's gaveled in? Is that how that works? I think Speaker Jones is going to gavel in the, the session, and, and then the Senate will gavel in. So wh where should uh, a an intrepid reporter be standing on that day? Both, both chambers? 
Yeah, I don't know how you do both. Uh, the streaming in the future will help you do both. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm partial to the House. Um, you know, the the new presiding officers need to be elected yeah. uh, in both uh, in both chambers. Speaker Jones was you know elected in right. May, but we actually have to elect her again, uh, as well as the Speaker Pro Tem, Sharice Hughes, um, as well. And then, of course, in the Senate, they have a pretty uh, pretty exciting transition that they'll have to do uh, on Wednesday as well. I want to touch on um, an issue that is highly visible right now, the, the in-between time before session and uh, in, until January the 8th. And we've been, you've been reading the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Post, you've been reading Maryland Matters and hopefully a minor detail. Um, look, one of your colleagues is going to jail and another one resigned last month due to some violations regarding the, uh, the Medical Cannabis Commission. What are your thoughts on that? What's, what is going on in Maryland politics, Delegate? Yeah, obviously it's disappointing when uh, things like this happen. Uh, it's, you know, it's disappointing on a lot of levels. In, in some cases, I've you know, known these people personally and yeah. closely with them. Um, it's difficult. I actually had to explain this to my son on Friday because a friend of mine was over and was asking me about it, and my son you know, was saying, well, it's political corruption. He's eight years old, you know, and so I was trying to explain basically that when you get 188 uh, people together, um, you're going to have a few uh, people who make mistakes or, or do or are bad actors, and uh, it, it, it's an unfortunate reality uh, in any group of people, and it's particularly difficult when, um, as I said earlier, we're supposed to be stewards of the taxpayer uh, dollars. So it's disappointing. Um, you know, look, it's not, it's, it's sadly not new, um, in fact, Maryland has a, has a sad, long history uh, that really ended up at the national level of, uh, of, of difficult political uh, scandals. So you hate it uh, when it happens, and uh, you just have to uh, hope that, the, that over time we'll get people with integrity in uh, who don't make those mistakes or commit those bad acts. But it's just it's difficult to see, uh, and, uh, and I know it's even more you know, difficult for the you know, taxpayers and the voters who feel like, you know, they're being taken advantage of. It is important to put in context, you know, 188 members of the Maryland General Assembly. Um, there are four or five, you know, folks who have had uh, these bad, uh, bad actions over the past few years. Right. And context is always important in politics because sometimes it's lost. But moving on into uh, the upcoming session, uh, the Baltimore Sun, Luke Broadwater, who I listed as one of the 2019 winners. His reporting was unparalleled uh, that uh, all reported directly on political corruption and ended up uh, causing what I think was a, a major leadership change. One mayor resigned, another mayor uh, came into office, and that's uh, history now. And the Baltimore Sun, Luke Broadwater and Pam Wood, they wrote a a piece about eight issues that are facing Maryland lawmakers during the 2020 Annapolis session. And they talked about new leadership. But I think the big, the big issue that's on everyone's mind moving into this session has to be education, education reform, uh, namely the Kerwin Commission that was that would be phased in over the 10 years. And I'm, I'm quoting from the Sun and eventually cost an additional $4 billion annually, $2.8 billion from the state and $1.2 billion from local governments delegate that's a lot of money and they spent a significant amount of time as a commission reviewing uh what maryland needs to bolster its education system to return it to a world-class system but with that there is a price tag and that price tag has concerned a lot of your colleagues it has concerned county officials elected officials how they're going to come up with this money but first what are your thoughts on Kerwin? And second, have, has the General Assembly found a comprehensive way or have they found a kind of a plan to make sure that these, these implementations are paid for in full? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, the, the, you know, the Kerwin Christian Report, a lot of the reporting on it, and I, you know, I, Pam, Pam Wood and Luke Broadwater do a great job. Uh, Aveta and Aaron Cox at the Washington Post do a terrific job. Uh, obviously, guys like you and Elevate Maryland and Maryland Reporter and Maryland Matters. I mean, just tremendous coverage. I can't get enough, you know, Maryland political coverage. It's like all I want to read. Uh, so I love, you know, all the work you guys are doing. Thank I'll you. say a lot of the coverage of the Kerwin Commission has been about the cost. So yeah. I just want to take a moment to talk a little about what's in the actual report. 
which is really more about the policy changes we need. What do we need to do in the, in the schools and in the classrooms uh, to improve education, like expanding uh, pre-K, like focusing more resources on schools with a high concentration of poverty, like doing things to improve uh, the education profession, the teaching profession, uh, so we can uh, basically follow the model in Massachusetts where they were able to improve the, the quality of the education uh, that way. Uh, things like improving a reading core to uh, ensure that folks who are falling behind get the sort of one-on-one tutoring uh, that they need. Uh, more wraparound services in schools uh, with, with students who need it. So there's a lot of really good, important policies in the report that I think most people probably support if you just ask them about the policies in isolation. Now, of course, they're not free. Uh, and being on the Appropriations Committee, I know that everything costs money. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a significant issue, and we're going to spend a lot of time on it. And it may mean, for example, that the phase-in isn't 10 years, like, like you said in the sunset, but could be 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and there could be other nips and tucks to the changes. But I just want to put this in a little bit of context. Um, so first of all, we already spend over $7 billion a year at the state level in K-12 through education. Um, so we're already spending a lot of money. Uh, this is an increase for sure, but it's not. we're not doubling the education budget. Right. And if you look at the growth in Maryland's budget over the past five years under Governor Hogan, the total budget's grown by about $7 billion during that time, just under Governor Hogan. So in context, it's, it's, a, it's a significant investment, and certainly to you and I, it's a, it's a significant investment. But in the context of our overall state budget, which is appropri- uh, you know, uh, approaching $50 billion, um, phasing this in over time is doable. And at least in the short term, the, the presiding officers, and I think this will be true in the long term uh, also, have taken off the table you know, basically straight tax increases, a straight income tax increase, a straight uh, sales or property tax uh, increase. So I think what you're going to see is a you know, menu of uh, funding options, and it's going to be paid for through a variety of different measures. We've heard a lot about, um, you know, getting rid of some of our uh, less effective tax credits, uh, mostly for businesses, but there could be others as well that, you know, it makes sense to sort of eliminate those tax credits or loopholes and find some savings there. Um, obviously, sports betting is one we've heard a lot about. Uh, in the longer run, recreational marijuana, I don't think that's going to be on the agenda this legislative session. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the digital sales tax, which was written about in the Post um, uh, last week, but I think they missed some important context. Context matters, right? 30 other states tax digital goods. So when I, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You in 1994 on a, you know, at Montgomery Mall uh, at Tape World on a single tape, I paid the sales tax on that. When I downloaded it this year, uh, on my phone, I didn't pay a sales tax on that. So this is basically a tax we all used to pay, but with the you know conversion to digital goods, has gone away in Maryland. Again, in 30 other states, they have this tax. Um, so I think that you know, to me, it makes a lot of sense to to apply the tax to digital goods. If I buy the physical book in the bookstore, or I download it on my uh, Kindle or iPad or whatever you have, um, you know, I think you know, paying the six percent sales tax is a pretty reasonable uh, a pretty reasonable thing. The estimate for that last year was it would net uh, or bring in about 50 million dollars a year. That's a you know, uh, that's a significant amount of money. Yeah, and and look, they're also considering reinstituting a higher income tax on millionaires and ending certain tax incentives and credits for businesses. Delegate the the governor is clearly opposed to the the spending portion. I, I haven't necessarily seen the governor come out and say that the recommendations in the Kerwin Commission were uh, were were untenable or they were simply uh, not the right recommendations. I, I didn't hear much about the policy, but rather it was the price tag and obviously a concern. So. The, the governor, during the annual MAKO convention on the last day, made a speech that got some press, and he talked about that it would not uh, – that the there would be basically no new tax increases there – that that he's opposed to this plan, this and he called it the um, I, I forget how did he he describe it. I think it was the the Kerwin Commission or the Kerwin Tax Hike, something like like that. Um, but nonetheless, your your colleagues in the legislature have pushed back against the governor, and they have talked, and I'm sure that they have expressed their concerns um, with the. I guess the the marketing or the PR campaign, and in so much as that that the governor is raising money from 
I think, big dollar donors and he's holding fundraisers. Um, what is your response to that? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, look, the governor likes branding, right? He, yeah, he's good uh, at it. He's, uh, he's good this, at it. We had the roadkill bill. We had the sunshine tax when he vetoed a bill that he later let become law without his signature. Obviously, the infamous uh, rain tax, which <laughs> still exists just in a reconstituted form. He takes credit for repealing it, but you actually still pay a property tax based on uh, based on that stormwater runoff issue. Um, so he's good at political branding. Uh, he you know, throws out a lot of names. Some take off. Some don't. Uh, I think this one is one that will not be successful. Again, the overall state budget under Governor Hogan is now $7 billion more a year than it was when he took office. Uh, so he has been there for significant spending hikes, much bigger than what's being proposed uh, uh, here. Again, you know, I think it's legitimate to say, you know, we need to find a way to pay for this. We balance our budget every year in the state of Maryland. So it doesn't look like it does at the federal level where we can just, you know, pass a budget with no, uh, you know, no concern about what it looks like on the, on the revenue side. We have to balance our budget every year. And if the budget goes out of balance, the legislature or the Board of Public Works, through some tools it has, you know, has to make, you know, corrections mid-year uh, to the budget. And so we'll do that. This will be done in a, uh, in a responsible way. And, of course, we also need to look out for the, the local governments. I, I think you identified the $1.2 billion, you know, total expectation for uh, all the local governments around the state, the county governments. In, in Montgomery, I think it's around $250 million, uh, that that, you know, Montgomery County will need to identify. Um, and, you know, making sure that's done in a way that, you know, doesn't cause undue hardship on some of these counties is going to be part of the discussion that happens, you know, over the next uh, over the next 92 days. Um, the Baltimore Sun also lists in their column uh, that was written on January the 3rd, which is called the title of it is eight key issues facing Maryland lawmakers during the 2020 General Assembly. They talk about Pimlico and Preakness, which is an issue near and dear to my wife's heart. She's born and raised and uh, still has her roots in Baltimore County, uh, namely Reisterstown. And they also talk about flavored uh, vaping liquids. And, of course, the comptroller, who is the regulator of uh, alcohol and tobacco, he's studying that. His team is, that is. They they recently held a meeting. Healthcare, Baltimore crime. Let me just mention that that Chairman Davis, the Economic Matters Committee chairman that regulates those products, also has legislation. And he championed the bill last year to increase the uh, age at which you could buy uh, tobacco. He has legislation on flavored vaping uh, coming in, uh, I believe, this year as well. So in addition to the comptroller's regulatory efforts, there's also some action on the legislative front there as well. As of December 10th, according to the Baltimore Sun, 47 people in Maryland have been hospitalized with vaping-associated lung injuries in 2019. And there has been, I think, near over 10 deaths nationwide uh, due to the vitamin E acetate that's in these black market-style uh, vaping cartridges. That's a concern. There is a concern, of course, about the flavored vaping liquids that appeal directly to teenagers. And we have two, we have two teenagers in our house. One is 16 and one is 13. And recently, um, the age to purchase tobacco in the state of Maryland has risen to 21. It looks like that's going to now happen at a federal level. What are your thoughts on that, Delegate? Yeah, I mean, I supported that legislation. Um, I think uh, it was a good public health step. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I had a little, uh, it took me a while to get there because my original thinking, like a lot of folks, I think, was, well, you know, we let people join the military at 18, we let them vote, um, you know, shouldn't they be making their own uh, decisions? But mm-hmm. just as a public health matter, you know, the same way alcohol, you can't purchase till you're 21, uh, you know, tobacco, it makes sense to do it in a similar, uh, a similar way. I think one of the concerns with what's going on with vaping is, We've actually had a huge public health success in this country of shifting people away from tobacco and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And I think vaping can actually be a useful tool in facilitating getting someone off cigarettes. But what's been happening now is people think it's safe. And so people who were not smokers previously are taking up vaping instead of it being a tool to transition off of smoking to actually incentivizing, encouraging new smokers uh, to sort of join that market. And that's, you know, that's, that's problematic. And I think that's why we... Uh, going after things like the flavored uh, vaping is is a good place to start because that really targets uh, young people. Well, certainly an issue that we're going to be keeping an eye on and one that will be uh, 
front and center in front of the the House of Delegates in the state Senate. Sports betting is another issue that the Baltimore Sun lists, and we're talking, of course, about legalizing uh, sports betting here, and it's been done in a handful of other states. And while Maryland hasn't gotten there yet, and despite the interest from sports fans in the state's largest casinos, uh, that's going to be interesting to watch. You want to comment on that one? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I think we should just go ahead and do it. I mean, the decision to have gambling in the state of Maryland was made before I was in the state legislature. You know, I actually voted against the slots as a private citizen on the ballot, but we have it now. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's happening in other places. Might as well have it here regulated. I think the fight is over where exactly you would have it. Would it just be at the remaining tracks? Would it also be available at casinos, other locations? Um, I expect all that to be worked out this year, and we'll see it on the ballot in uh in november because it does require a constitutional uh amendment to to expand gambling in the state of maryland so my expectation is that we're going to see that on the ballot in november i know they couldn't quite get there before with that legislation but i think now particularly given uh, the ability to use any revenue um for the blueprint for maryland the Kerwin commission uh ideas uh it's you know that's going to be a strong encouragement to move forward with this um Gun legislation. Um, I, I was reading an article by the the Cumberland Times News that, um, and they talked about some of the gun safety bills. That was an issue that came before the the, the General Assembly in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, your colleague Del, uh, Delegate Eric Lukey, who I believe is he the majority leader now? He is. I no. think he doesn't officially become the majority leader until Wednesday. Okay. He's he's quoted in here that and he said that gun safety bills had passed the House but not the Senate during the last session will be coming back, and Senate Majority Whip Susan Lee, um, who is your state senator in your District 16, said she plans to reintroduce her bill that would regulate sales of long guns such as rifles and shotguns in the state, and she has a good feeling about it passing in 2020. Um, what do you think? What's going to happen with some of these gun bills? That was a contentious issue, uh, certainly one that brought out uh, quite a number of people to committee hearings. And I remember interviewing uh, Andrea Chambly, who uh, uh, very sadly lost her husband, uh, John, in the Capitol Gazette shooting. So what are your thoughts on that? What's going to happen with some gun legislation? Yeah, so first of all, just let me say, in my short time in Annapolis, who comes out for these hearings has really changed, for these bills has really changed. Um, we now see a huge amount of advocates for sensible uh, gun control, sensible gun safety legislation, which was just not the case a few years ago. It used to be that only the uh, advocates for guns would, would come out, and now it's a much more uh, even even fight when it comes to sort of the, 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 the popular will, the people showing up for hearings and for meetings and for lobby days and things. Um, look, the governor vetoed the repeal, repeal of the uh, handgun review board, my expectation is that we will override that veto. The uh, the long gun bill you referenced came pretty close to passing last year. It was working its way through both chambers. They just couldn't get it done before the before the end of the session. So I, I do think that has a very good chance uh, this year. And we'll see lots of other uh, pieces of legislation. I actually have one myself that I'm working on related to how we regulate uh, security at gun dealers, at gun shops, because um, there have been some uh, concerning cases of, of thefts from gun shops, which is obviously something that uh, that could you know lead to significant problems. So we just want to make sure that we're uh, following best practices with how gun dealers are securing their stock, you know, using trigger locks, having insurance, having alarm systems, so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, it's going to continue to be a very uh, active issue. Um, I'll say I think Maryland can do a lot more, but it's really going to help if Virginia uh, gets into this fight, which it seems like they will be now that they have a, a change in majority control of their legislature, because obviously our borders are porous. Uh, and so mm. it's great to have strong laws in Maryland, but you really need strong laws everywhere, but certainly the surrounding uh, the surrounding states. Um, you know, my recollection is the the Navy Yard shooting uh, in D.C. That guy bought his guns in Virginia and then walked into D.C. with them. Yeah. Uh, D.C. had strong gun control laws. Virginia did not. Obviously, it'll be very helpful to, to have a neighboring state uh, strengthen its laws. In November, the governor pledged that he would reintroduce political redistricting legislation on the first day of the 2020 legislative session, which is, of course, next week. Uh, and the governor had he'd spoken out against gerrymandering in Maryland and 
there wasn't a whole lot of success last year. In fact, he tried to push through a nonpartisan redistricting commission, and they they came to a review, and they challenged and, and named the map. And, of course, then the Supreme Court handed down its decision, and then we're back at square peg one. What's going to happen with that? I think all of us can say that redistricting is one of those nonpartisan good government issues, and we want fair and precise congressional districts that are drawn proportionately and uh, where the right people should be in the right district. So what's going to happen with that delegate? Yeah, so of course, the districts are drawn proportionally. I mean, that's a one person, one vote, mm-hmm. you know, federal law. And so if there was a violation there, that is something the Supreme Court, unlike political gerrymandering, has been very clear about, is, is not allowed, nor is racial uh, gerrymandering. So, those, you know, the, the district's drawn uh, they may not look great, but they are proportional in, in sort of the legal sense of one person, one vote. I don't. I actually don't know what's going to happen with that issue. Um, you know, it's uh, you know with the census this year, it's really next year that um, the next redistricting takes place. Um, you know, at the state level for the state legislative lines, we have a set of rules that are followed um, related to political uh, compactness, respect for political subdivisions, uh, continuous districts. Um, and those rules only apply to the state legislative lines and not the congressional lines. So I've heard discussion of maybe applying those rules to the congressional lines. But I, I, I just don't know where that's going to all uh, end up. I know it's been an issue for the uh, for the governor. He, I think, I think he vetoed a bill we passed, Delegate Resnick's bill, on, um, on doing an interstate uh, compact uh, for this. Um, I think a lot of us think a national solution would be best. It was somewhat disappointing in the Supreme Court didn't help point us in that direction. But, you know, I think, yeah, over the next year and a half, we're going to continue to hear a lot about this because of the census and then the next, you know, decennial redistricting. Every time I hear the word census, it reminds me of the 1991 Jonathan Demme classic, Silence of the Lambs, where Hannibal Lecter said, a census taker once tried to test me and I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. So yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that the um, the census takers are cautious uh, when they're out there taking people's census uh, here in 2020 because we need to know how many people live in your house. Um, so no fava beans in Chianti for uh, for folks in the metro D.C. area. Yeah, uh, no, it's really important that people, you know, be aware of the census and that they should fill out the form and make sure everyone gets counted. There's a lot of, you know, good reasons for that. It's in the Constitution, um, but it will affect our, you know, legislative representation. It also affects a lot of uh, federal formula funding, uh, and so an accurate count is, is really important. My colleague, Delegate Wilkins, um, in the House has been really active on this issue and making sure that Maryland has a plan to get a, a complete count, so it's uh, it's really important over this next year. Um, what are some of the bills that you're going to introduce, Delegate? Uh, so I mentioned the, the bill related to uh, gun dealers, so I'm excited about that. It'll actually be the first time I've ever gone uh, to present my own bills to the Judiciary Committee. Um, so it'll be, uh, I think it's the last committee I haven't been to yet as a, as a delegate, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm going to have legislation related to uh, electrification of our state bus fleet. Maryland has about 800 buses. Um, we're somewhat unusual in having a state bus fleet of that size. It's because at the state level, we actually run local transit service in Baltimore City. So like in Montgomery County, where you and I are, the ride-on is Montgomery County. The county government runs that. But in Baltimore City, their local bus service is run by the Maryland Transit Administration. So uh, the governor actually had in his draft Greenhouse Gas uh, Reduction Act plan uh, half electrifying the state bus fleet. This is going to push a little further and, and have, over time, uh, a full electrification of the uh, of the bus fleet. So I'm excited about that. I'm working with, I believe, your state senator, Senator Kagan, mm-hmm. on uh, transparency legislation. Her and I last year successfully passed legislation to require the State Board of Elections to web stream their meetings, uh, Hmm. to video stream their meetings, uh, which they're now doing. Uh, We just recently asked WMATA, the metro system, to begin web streaming their uh, board and committee meetings. They've now put that in place uh, at our our request. Uh, And so Senator Kagan and I are looking at a few of the other sort of miscellaneous quasi-independent agencies that we have as a state to make sure they're doing the same thing. So, for example, the Maryland Stadium Authority. Uh, which enters a lot of contracts and and you know moves a lot of money around uh, for the state. The Public Service Commission, which actually already does it sort of on their own, but this would just you know codify it uh, into law. Uh, uh, TEDCO, the Technology Development Corporation, mm-hmm. uh, and the Maryland Transportation Authority, which is the the tolling authority. They set the tolls in the Baltimore Harbor uh, Harbor Tunnel, excuse me, um, Fort McHenry Tunnel, uh, the Bay Bridge. Uh, so making sure that they're uh, all posting their agendas online. 
posting their minutes online and web streaming their uh, their meetings. Just sort of a you know 21st century government uh, transparency. It's well timed with the House now doing this pilot on streaming our four meetings. Of course, our committee meetings have been streamed. Uh, for years, last year, I put in place as chair of the Montgomery County House delegation, streaming of our Friday uh, delegation meetings. Uh, and so this is just where government is going. It's the expectation people have, just like they expect you to Facebook live video uh, your conversations. Um, and so this is a good bill I'm working on with, with your senator. Well, Senator Kagan, of course, uh, her next-gen 911 bill was, I think, one of the best pieces of legislation that have come out of uh of, of annapolis this last year and i think one to to celebrate i think it's going to save lives and i certainly think it's going to um to to really vastly improve the way that we see uh communicating and how we communicate with our 911 operators so uh good on senator kagan for really pushing that i believe she was a minor detail winner as a result of she she was, and you know, she I, she called me and thanked me, and uh, I was I was surprised, um, uh, and I I got the phone call last week, and I said, oh wait, and uh, it was it was a very nice phone call, so uh, it was it was I, I gotta I, I appreciate that. So delegate, tell me, um, what uh, what's gonna happen opening day, the festivities for anyone who wants to go down to Annapolis to follow it, of course. The Board of Public Works meeting is going to be happening, I think, at 10 o'clock. And then what what's the process that day, uh, aside from the massive quantities of alcohol that will be uh, consumed and uh, imbibed uh, at the various... Uh, well, not by me, because I, I drive home at night. So yes, yes. I will not yes. be uh, enjoying that, uh, that particular uh, side of things. But yeah, <laughs> look, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a festive day. <laughs> Um, the session itself is relatively uh, short. It doesn't just just doesn't take very long. We you know gavel in. We do a quorum call. We elect the presiding officers. There may be some committee assignments and things like that, sort of right across the desk. Um, but that's really it. And then we'll adjourn, and people will go to the various receptions that are all over Annapolis. Um, and then the real work, you know, sort of begins the next day. You know, when your committees start meeting and, and, you know, over the next, you know, week to 10 days, legislation will start filtering out. Um, and, of course, for me, uh, being on the Appropriations Committee, uh, the introduction of the budget by the governor is really our starting gun for our, uh, for our activities. Well, I, I was there last year, and uh, it's, a, it's a, yes, you're right. It is a very festive day. It's a nice time to catch up with your state delegates, with your state senators, and the governor, he typically comes out and enjoys a, a brew or two at one of the local places. And what, what's the what's the hot spots? What are the uh, the, the parties? I know that uh, our friends in, at, at uh, um, I, I think, Compass Government Relations, they're going to hold a, an event. I think uh, there's... Um, uh, one over. There's a couple at Harry Brown's. I'll be live at Harry Brown's on at six o'clock. Um, I don't know. I, there's there's a bunch of these events that you can go to. Yeah, there's usually a bunch around State Circle at the different um, restaurants and and firms and and shops. I I'm not that familiar with them to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I know MML does one. I'm not sure if Mako does one. Hmm. Mako Municipal League uh, uh, does one sort of later in the evening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a festive day. I mean, I think a lot of people make the comparison that's like, you know, first day back at high school, you know, when you're seeing a lot of people you haven't seen all summer, uh, and just sort of catching up and, and checking in and everyone's still in a really good mood because we haven't had long committee hearings yet. And there's been no vetoes or veto threats or anything. So it's a very, you know, happy, festive, exciting, uh, exciting day. Again, the real work really begins on, uh, on day two of the uh, legislative session. It's a, it's a sprint from there. Yeah. Um, everybody is dying to know Delegate Corman. Who have you picked for your 2020 presidential candidate? I, I don't have one. To oh. be honest with you. I mean, obviously I'm going to be supporting the Democrat. I don't think that's a huge, uh, a huge surprise. But my wife and I were just talking about that the other day that we didn't know uh, uh, quite what to do, which for me is a little strange because in 2004, 2008, and 2016, I had made my pick, you know, fairly early. Yeah. Uh, and both in 2004, 2008, I actually went to New Hampshire for the, the folks who ended up being the Democratic nominees, John Kerry and Barack Obama. It's fun up there. I, I was up there several yeah. times. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think I've ever been colder than doing one of these, like, morning visibilities for John Kerry in <laughs> 2004, standing outside in New Hampshire. I just, I, I felt like my soul was freezing over. 
Yeah. But uh, but it's definitely a good time. It's a great thing for political junkies to do. So, but yeah, I'm still in the uh, shopping around uh, in the shopping around phase. Yeah. So there's only a, really a few left, and uh, I think Congressman Delaney's still running. So good for for Congressman Delaney. But they've been dropping out like crazy recently. Uh, Julian Castro is is now suspending his campaign, and it looks like it's down to about five. Uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and uh, maybe Amy Klobuchar. Um, I think that's it. I think that's really who you're going to see on the national stage. And um, I, I think that Democrats are clearly um, they're 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 very pointed and their their concerns and as they should be. And I think that they are closely watching this, but. I think at the end of the day, Joe Biden's lead has not been corrupted. It has not fallen drastically. And to all my progressive friends who are watching, I'm sure that they are um, uh, they're they're, going to blast me in a bit. But I I think it's Vice President Joe Biden's to lose. Yeah. So, I mean, another person who I think is a factor is Michael Bloomberg, just because of bottomless uh, pockets. But, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I get your big gulp. uh, I was uh, I was in a uh, yeah I, right uh, the New York City uh, public health thing yeah I was in a uh, in a green room to talk about the highway stuff uh, a few months ago and for the person going on before me was a political correspondent on the Hill and I was trying to sell her on this idea of by erosion that over time Biden's poll numbers would erode because of all the things piling up and that turns out to just be totally wrong yeah right whatever happens uh, whatever thing he says that you know maybe not everyone agrees with or whatever. Uh, fake scandal the president tries to put him in hasn't really affected his poll numbers. Uh, I think people just like him, and that's you know important in uh, in politics. So he's really holding strong. Obviously, um, Senator Sanders has just a huge uh, following and base of support, and very passionate uh, supporters both in Iowa, and New Hampshire, where you know it, it counts, but nationwide. And then Elizabeth Warren has really set the uh, the discussion for the debate uh, in the primary. Um, with her policy ideas, her yes. constant churn of, you know, I have a, I have a plan for that. And obviously you got to respect uh, Mayor Buttigieg, his ability um, to take <laughs> my constituency is larger than his constituency in South Bend. <laughs> so it's just kind of amazing to see what he's been able to do, uh, given his, uh, his background. Can but, you know, for junkies like us, it's, it's always interesting to watch. I just, I'm not, uh, I'm not committed to anybody yet. Well, I, we are junkies and political junkies, that is, in, in the most, uh, the most happy sense because we both enjoy politics and I always appreciate you watching. But if I may, I, I and I hate to make this prediction, but I, I just there's something deep inside of me, and it's 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 kind of not based on anything other than intuition and a gut feeling that the president's going to be reelected. So I, you know, there's certainly precedent for that, and uh, you know, the last one-term president was who George H. W. Bush. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do at this juncture still believe that Donald Trump is going to be reelected or it's just going to come down to one state and it'll be like one county in Wisconsin and it, it will be fighting until uh, three days after the election. So I, I yeah, this is not predictive of anything. We've, had, we've never had four two term presidents in a row. Yeah, that's right. So it'll be. Uh, but, you know, if you look at recent history, certainly, you know, it, it seems in the modern media environment, the incumbents have done pretty well but you know we'll see i mean he he barely won he won but he barely won in in 2016 he won by 70,000 votes yeah spread across three states yeah uh and so just a minor shift in the other direction that's a uh, minor detail that's important so right <laughs> um delegate corman where can we find out more about you how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about legislation or anything that's happening inside of the district 16 community Sure. So on Twitter, I'm at at M. Corman. Uh, there's a Facebook page, Delegate Mark Corman. And then uh, my email is mark at markcorman.com. Uh, and uh, it's Mark with a C, Corman with a K, just to make things kind of confusing. Uh, Delegate Corman of District 16, I always appreciate you spending time with me uh, to, to do this synopsis of what happens, what will happen during session. Of course, it could all change in just a moment. Um, we, we never know. And you are in for some long committee hearings, my friend. 
and I, I'm sure that I will see you as I roam the hallways with my suitcase, as I did last year, always looking to track down a legislator for an interview or for a off-the-record conversation or some sort of uh, juicy political tidbit of gossip. So I will be seeing you in Annapolis um, frequently, I'm sure. But thank you so much for coming on tonight, Delegate. Well, thanks for having me. I'll see you in Annapolis. And I also have a meeting to thank you uh, for your coverage of the Rockville City Council. Oh, yeah. I found those podcasts so fascinating and the mayor election as well. Thank you. Um, it was just really, I, I mean, I know you can't do that in sort of the gubernatorial year because there's way too many of us running around, but uh, I really enjoyed that set of podcasts. I meant to tell you that uh, Thank you. when I saw you uh, at the uh, at the Jewish uh, legislative breakfast a few weeks ago, but uh, it slipped my mind. So. Thanks. I, I had fun doing that, and I, I love covering municipal elections, and uh, I, I really, um, <laughs> I, I enjoy talking to, about these local issues, and uh you know, I, I the candidates who they all agreed to come on, uh, minus a couple, but uh, you know, they at least I could have. You know, I always think like uh, you know th- these podcasts. Um, people people are actually listening, and if there's a if there's an audience out there for and people are hungry for politics, um, you know, hey, people listen to to Alex Jones. Um, so um, if they can listen to Alex Jones, then they can listen to me. So. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I don't. I don't think you should compare yourself to Alex Jones. That's probably not the, <laughs> probably not the measure you should use. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not. But, uh, well, delegate, thank you so much for for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Um, have a successful session, and uh, look, let's catch up again soon. I'll see you down there. Thank All you. right, thank you, sir. Okay, that was Delegate Mark Corman of District 16. He talked a little bit about what was going to happen in the upcoming session. And it's fun. It's going to be 90 days of where legislators are going to dig deep down and they are going to uh, figure out all the complex policy issues uh, in throughout the state of Maryland. So with that, I appreciate you listening. We're going to try this new format. And for folks who are listening now, as I'm looking right into my iPhone 10 camera, how was it? Tell me. Give me some feedback. Was it good? Can you hear me okay? Did you hear Delegate Corman? Um, was it uh, was it a good show? Did you was it informative? Do you like this format versus the the traditional podcast where you download it through iTunes? Um, I'm curious. Feedback is important. That's how we're going to continue to grow. I encourage you to consider sponsoring a podcast if you would like. They look Eric Galley, our friend at Galley Public Affairs, sponsored a podcast. He's actually doing two. He's sponsoring the upcoming one on January the 8th, where my friend Lynn Foxwell and I will be live at 6 o'clock p.m. at Harry Brown's. Harry Brown's, the the heart and soul of uh, where all the business is conducted. So give me some feedback. Tell me, what do you think about it? What do you think about uh, this this format, this live format? I know, you got to see my ugly mug the whole time, and then ho- hopefully you hear the audio through my mixer. But uh, this is exciting. Um, a, a lot of a lot of interesting things are happening tomorrow night for anybody who is listening. Comptroller Peter Francho is holding a fundraiser from five until seven p.m. at Denison's Brewery down in Silver Spring. Good friend of mine who owns it, Julie Verratti, she was a former uh, lieutenant governor candidate with uh, uh, with Alec Ross. There's a big fundraiser there, so uh, if you're down in that area in Silver Spring, check it out. The Comptroller is raising some money tomorrow night. He'll be there, and then there's a whole host of other events um, out there. So maybe I'll see you in Annapolis. Uh, let me know. We'll be there as much as we can be and trying to get the scoops and getting you the news. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, my name is Ryan Miner. You can find me on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and a aminordetail.com where we cover Maryland news and politics and anything that is newsworthy and that we can write about. That's what we cover Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. Have a great night, and uh, stay warm. It's cold out there. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook, and follow the conversation on Twitter at Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.